Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Good morning, church family. Um, I want to mention something that's found in the book of Job, something that I find incredibly interesting, actually, and valuable to us as we move into worship. Um, you see, in the book of Job, um, Job enters incredibly difficult circumstances in his life, and he accuses God of his failure to judge well. He actually accuses God. Um, and God's response I find very interesting. Um, I'm going to read some snippets of it to you. He says, Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? He's saying, I am the creator. And then later he says, have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? He's saying, I am the master of time. And then later he says, where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness? He's saying, I am the bringer of light. And then later he says, I have authority over the weather. And then later he says, I created the constellations that you see every night. What God is really doing is he's actually declaring his sovereignty. And what's confusing is that God does not address anything about what happened in the heavenlies with Satan accusing Job and asking to... um, basically torture Job. God doesn't mention anything about that. He just says, look at who I am. That's really God's answer to Job. And what he does is he actually flips the script in a way that he's a, instead of God being the one who can't judge well, he accuses Job of his failure of judging the universe. Um, He's saying, I am the one who's sovereign. And sovereignty, it really just means the one with overarching power and authority. He's saying, I am the one who's sovereign and all-powerful, and at times my decisions will be beyond your understanding. You lack understanding. And at this, Job worships. He says, I know you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. It forces me to assume that God has purpose in the decisions that he makes, even in the midst of our suffering church let's worship god this morning as the one who is sovereign church he sees you in your circumstance and as what job found out he is more than capable of good judgment even though we might fail to see it at times let's uh let's go ahead and take a look at our scriptures let's go to psalm uh, psalm 16 psalm 16 there ever was a secret for handling the troubles of life and the certainty of death, David must have known it. And I think uh, as we look at the scripture today, we'll see something about that. He had an insider's view of present problems and death on his heels. So I was thinking about the life of David and looking at this psalm. Um, after David was anointed to be king, he had to flee from King Saul, who was his predecessor, the present and sitting king. And uh, he spent a decade, we don't often realize the time and the length that are in some of these things. We're going through a season. Anybody been there? And you're like, how long, O Lord? And then you look at Scripture and you see how long, O Lord, (laughs) some of those guys went through stuff. Uh, David was on the run from King Saul for the better part of a decade, maybe, maybe longer still. 
And so he knew some of the difficulties of being on the run. Sometimes the armies of Saul were just uh, close enough that he could smell them. And at night, he would lay down and sleep with the possibility of being captured or killed the next day. And so he knew the, uh, the imminence or the, the pressing in of death around him. He understood what that was like. Um, Psalm 3 gives us an example of that. And we have to remember this, too. When we read stories about people going through stuff in the Bible, we, we think, oh, well, it was easy for them because they're in the Bible. <laughs> and what we need to keep in mind is that they don't know the end of the story when they're in the middle of it. We know the end of the story because it's being told later, but in the middle of it, they don't know what's coming next. I think David had an understanding that he would be king because God anointed him. And so I think there was always that on his mind that he would survive. But exactly what that looked like, he didn't know. And I think he may have wondered at times if God's promise would come through. And so he doesn't know the end of the story like we do. He knew the pressure of family uh, because his family was being hunted because of him. He knew the strains of leadership when things weren't going well. Uh, You may remember one time in David's story when he was returning from uh, what the Bible calls raiding the Negev Desert. He was down there doing what King Saul should have been doing if he wasn't distracted trying to find David. And that's securing Israel's borders. He wasn't doing that. David was doing that. And he came back to Ziklag, and the place was in flames. They could see smoke billows rising from Ziklag far off, and they came in, and the men, their hearts were sunken because they had left their families behind in Ziklag and gone off to do to follow David into war. And when they came back, uh, uh, the Amalekites had taken their families and run off. And it tells us that David's men, the 600 outlaws that were running around with him, misfits, whatever you want to call them, uh, that were running around with him, they were ready to stone David to death. They were ready to kill him. And the Bible says that David went and he found strength in the Lord, his, do- his God. Uh, another translation says he encouraged himself in the Lord. He knew how to get encouragement from God. And I hope that as we grow in our Christian faith that we understand earlier in David's life that uh, when he was struggling a little bit with Saul, Jonathan came and strengthened David in the Lord. Do you remember that? Jonathan came and did that. And then after that, we don't hear of Jonathan speaking with David again. And in this moment, David's all alone, that Ziklag moment, and the Bible says that he went and he found strength in the Lord his God. He he strengthened himself in God. He understood God's purposes, his resolve. He put his faith in God, and he he understood where his trust needed to be. And, And I think as we grow in Christ, that needs to be us, that we need to learn how to find strength in the Lord our God. Are you with me? Don't say amen too loud because you're probably afraid that if I say yes to this, God's going to send me a Job-type experience. And, uh, and, and maybe he does send things like that to strengthen us. But the goal is not for us just to cruise into heaven. The goal is for us to be perfected in our character so that we become creatures fit for heaven. And so God will sometimes allow difficulty to come into our life to grow us. And we do this in every area of life. I want to stress this. We do it in every area of life, and we're surprised at it when it comes to um, our spirituality. We think, well, that's true. So, like, we work out, we get exercise. That's really, that's really discipline in our body, and we put our body through hardship so we can, be, we can be in better shape and feel better. Okay? That's one of the reasons why we don't like to exercise. 
right? We challenge ourselves at school. We're, we're challenged to learn new things and to press in and to, we're tested on those things and we study. We're putting our minds through adversity, right? Anybody ever saw school, see school that way? Okay. Well, I did. I did. It was adversity from the moment. I was distracted looking out the windows. Don't put Luke near the window. He's going to be distracted during, during school. But we put our, our lives through different kinds of tests and challenges. At your job, they may have times when they do drills to challenge you to respond in the right way at the right time. And so these types of adversities are also present in our spiritual life. And I don't think God is trying to trip us up, and he's not trying to take us out. But I think at times he allows things to come into our life that will challenge us, and we know it's the case. Come on, isn't that true? James, doesn't he say, the testing of your faith, it produces in your life a kind of maturity. Peter says the same thing. And so we have these kinds of challenges. We need to know how to respond in the midst of them. I think this psalm suggests David has come uh, through those other things that we talked about, and he he now sits in a place of leadership over Israel, but he's going through something again. Have you ever realized that once you've uh, been victorious in a battle, that's not probably the last battle? Sorry to tell you that, but that's probably not the last battle that you'll face. And, and so every battle that we face prior uh, can be building material for us to be stronger in the moment when the next comes. So he's been through some of those things, and now he's going through something again. The suggestion uh, have been what David's going through have been the actions of the godless in the land. Verse 4, you can see in verse 4, and we'll read this passage in just a moment. But just look at verse 4 with me here. It says uh, in verse 16, or chapter 16 and verse 4, those who run after other gods will suffer more and more, like an increasing measure. Uh, so he may be dealing with the godless in the land, or he may be dealing with the personal illness. Look at verse 10 with me, and we'll read this whole passage in just a moment here. Uh, verse 10 says, Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. Uh, that Some think that maybe David is facing some kind of an illness. I, I don't know that that's the case. It sounds to me like the concerns, the, these are the concerns of a man coming to the end of his life, okay, as he's thinking about what lies beyond, uh, there, there comes questions, and there are pressures and promises of other religions. Hear me in, in this, because I think it's important to know that sometimes God asks us to trust him in the dark. We don't always know all the things we'd like to know. Like, uh, we would love to, I think we'd love to know more about heaven. Probably wouldn't like to know more about hell. We would like to know more about heaven and what it's going to be like. And sometimes uh, questions come, like, what is heaven going to be like? And uh, one of the answers that that is is that we have some bare description of it. But I know this, we're not going to be sitting on, on clouds and playing harps. Okay, So don't get your hopes up for that scenario. It's going to be something different than that. But the reason I bring that up is that when it comes to what David must have known about death... Uh, some of the other religions of the day offered more details than following God offered. And I, I think that's important to point out here that in this case, he's facing much of it that's unknown. I one time talked to a, a couple cult members, and uh, 
they had this little wood carving of life uh, and then the afterlife. And they could explain all the details of what was what was happening within that. They had that little wood carving to describe life and afterlife and how exactly that will happen. And it occurs to me that I could see how attractive that would be if someone wanted answers for the afterlife. You pull out a little wood carving, it, it seemed a little corny to me that you're gonna put a little <laughs> you're gonna put life and death and the afterlife in a little wood carving. But but that's what they did and uh, described it. And that's that's attractive to some people. You see, when it comes to religions that are made up, people can make them up however they want. Think about David and and uh, his understanding of what comes after life. You see, um, when it comes to Egypt, they had a very thorough explanation of what happens after death, and they prepared for it, and we know a little bit about that in the process of mummification and what they did in terms of putting the, uh, the riches of the king within the tombs so that they could pass through into the afterlife and pay off any highwaymen that stood in the way and make sure that they were there. They had to have food, too, for the journey. So that an explanation for that. That's far more than what David had in terms of an explanation of what happens after death, especially in the Old Testament. I think other surrounding religions must have had the same kind of thinking. And and that's the thing about man-made religions is that when you make it up, you can make it as detailed as people like it. But when it's revealed, we're at the mercy of what God wants to tell us. In the Old Testament, there's not much known about what comes after death, at least in terms of what the people knew. God knows everything. In the New Testament, God has uh, told us some things. But something he will not tell us, some things he'll not tell us. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians that I knew a man uh, about 14 years ago who was caught up into the third heaven. Do you remember that? And he says this, and he's hinting at the fact that this is him. And he says, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, but there were mysteries and things that were revealed to me there that it's unlawful for me to tell. In other words, there are things that I saw that I can't tell because God doesn't want those things known. Can you settle with a God who will hold some things back in mystery? Or does that frustrate us? I think it probably frustrates us, but can we trust him in light of those things? So he tells us that, Paul tells us that I can't repeat everything. Remember, Paul's opponents were the apparently uh, those prophets who were offering detailed revelations of everything that they'd seen, but they were wrong in it. And so that tells me that sometimes God leaves us a little bit in mystery. Okay? What we know about what's coming is going to be good. It's going to be good. And we know God's going to be there, and that's the best part. And so I want to take a look at this in just a moment, because if David is facing these kinds of things, uh, he knows how to get through them. And you know the reward of the afterlife primarily is not a place. Are you with me? Do you know where I'm going with that? The primary reward of the afterlife is the person of Jesus. It's communion with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. That's the great part of what's coming. It's not being on the streets of gold and having a mansion just over the hilltop. The greatest part of what's coming is being there with God. If God's there, it's heaven. If God's not there, it's hell. And that's the real truth of all of this. 
So I'm only guessing here at the circumstances of what David's going through when he's written this psalm. But what we see in the psalm, regardless of what the setting is, there's a perspective which we, we can strengthen ourselves in God with and prepare us for living for him and prepare us for dying with him. I think we can learn something from David's example. Let's take a look at Psalm 16. If you would with me, keep me safe, my God. For you, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, apart from you I have no good thing. I say to the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup and make my lot secure. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who he counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your faithful, your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with the joy, with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Aren't you thankful for that? David doesn't have all the details that we have. Jesus talked a lot more about what heaven's like, what the afterlife is like. And by the way, there's, there's, uh, it's not just heaven. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And so there's a lot more to this often than we think. But what uh, David does is he trusts in God in the middle of, of not knowing some things, not knowing some things, maybe in terms of the conflict that's around him and, and what may come, maybe as the end of life approaches, he doesn't know exactly what that's going to look like, but he knows where to look, and that's really important. The first thing he does that I think will encourage us is that he prays. I'd like you to notice that. We don't know in the midst of our difficulties or as life goes on exactly what's coming in the next day, but when we're struggling, when we're facing adversity, we, we should pray. Remember what James says in uh, the book of James, I think chapter 5, somewhere around verse 14. Is any among you afflicted? Is anybody going through difficulties? Is anybody going through trials of any kind? Come on, does that, does that point to anybody right now? If, you, if you're going through that, let them pray. That's what we ought to do. Isn't it funny that in Scripture we have to be told that? Like that ought to be our natural response. Lord, do you know what's going on here? And obviously he does. But our natural response ought to be to pray. But often it's the last thing we do. The first thing we typically do is we try to go figure out how we can fix the problem. Anybody with me on that? Like your first instinct is, let's fix this problem. Our last instinct oftentimes is, after we've done everything else, you know, we should probably pray about this. But that's really not the scriptural approach. Scriptural approach is, let us pray. Even if you have an idea of the solution, it's good to pray about it. So we ought to pray. And I'd like you to notice some things about his prayer. The first thing we notice about his prayer, if you look at verse 1, his prayer is personal. Okay, This is not, oh, God who is out there, the wonder of the universe, nebulous as you are. 
No, this is very personal. Uh, He prays to his God. He prays, hear me, my God, I take refuge. So notice three times David mentions himself in this prayer. He's concerning himself with the God who cares about him. And he says, keep me safe. Okay, Keep me safe. Lord, I need safety in this circumstance. If it's the, as I said, we don't know exactly the circumstances surrounding the psalm. It's a psalm of worship, and there's general principles that we can glean from it. But if what has inspired this psalm is some kind of a difficulty around him, he wants to know that he'll be kept safe. As we pass through the veil beyond this life, we want to know that God will keep us safe, right? That we're not... We're not falling into the hands of the enemy when we die. We want to know God will keep us safe, that we're not dissolving into nothingness. We want to know that God will keep us. And so he's praying, God, keep me safe. Then he says, you are my God. And I'll, I'll talk more about that in just a moment. But it's not just, oh, God, who's out there, but my God. Can you say that today, that God is your God? When we have a relationship with him, it's much easier to appeal to him. When we don't have a relationship with him, we feel as if we're imposing on somebody who may do something and who may not. But when he's our God, we know he's a God who hears and responds. And he says, I take refuge in you. So with all that, it might sound like this prayer is me-centered, but it's not. It's actually God-centered. God is the object of this prayer, not David himself. His prayer is God-centered. God's the object of his faith. And it's not even David himself. Like, God, um, could you help me? I really want to make my way through this. No, God, you are going to have to get me through this. So he makes God the object of his faith. And I think it says something to us today that a king, in the height of his power, needs God. Are you, have you caught that? This is David writing this. It's, it's called a, a miktam of David. This is David writing this psalm. Okay, So David's the king of Israel. Saul is distant history now. David is sitting on the throne. As he sits on the throne, being the chief power in his land, having all the resources that he needs, having people to do his bidding for him if he just gives the word, right? having power and influence over the whole nation, even he recognizes his need for God. So I I say that because in America, we tend to think of ourselves as pretty self-sufficient, and we also pat people on the back who are self-sufficient. We want everybody to be self-sufficient, and that's good up to a point. Like, we don't want want people always mooching. You You know what I'm saying? That's a theological word, too, is mooching. Uh, what's another word for that? Taking advantage of us. Not relying upon the strength that they have. Like, if you got strength, rely upon your strength where you can. We don't want people doing that. So self-sufficiency is good up to a point, but there's a point at which we understand there are some things, no matter how sufficient we are, we can't control. We are not in control of our destiny 100%. We can make choices that put us in better places, but we don't know what tomorrow holds. God does. And so at some point, we have to realize this is the limit of what I can do. God, you need to, I'm trusting in you. I'm trusting in you. And so he's uh, the king 
but this king has humbled himself. And when facing death, a lot of the things that are important to kings and kingdoms and people of affluence, they don't matter. As Solomon observes, both small and great meet the same end. They go to the grave. So he, he prays, keep me safe. Uh, some translations have preserved me, some protect me. But his prayer is praying, God, I'm trusting in you. Please, as I've trusted in you, take care of me. And so his prayer then is strengthening his position in God. In other words, he's saying, I made you my safe place. You know, we talk about go to your safe place. God is our safe place in this life. Are you with me? Man, we're so quiet out here. I wonder if you're awake. I can't see your eyes. So that's just permission to sleep, isn't it? Right. But God is our safe place. And I think we should pray like this. I'm taking refuge in you, Lord. Lord, protect me. Be be confident that he will perform his purpose in our lives regardless of what tr- what trials may come. Now, it it requires our participation, our trust. God will not make you obey his purposes. But if we're cooperative with him and we're in agreement with him, nothing can stand in the way of what God ultimately wants to do. Paul says um, in one place, he says, we wanted to come to you, but Satan hindered us. And I wanted to point this out because Satan can hinder, but he cannot ultimately prevent the purposes of God. Okay, In your life, if you're trusting God, no one can stand in the way of that ultimately. He can slow process, he can slow the progress, but he cannot control the situation in your life. God alone has that kind of control. So notice that when the the difficulty comes, if this is the end of life and he doesn't know what to do and and how to look forward to the future, if this is some kind of attack within his kingdom, if there's some other problem, put yourself in these situations. Whatever your circumstance may be, the encouragement that we get from David right here is pray, pray, okay? Second thing that he does is he acknowledges. He acknowledges. This is uh, verses 2 through 6. If you look at verses 2 through 6, he says, I will say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Uh, Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say to the uh, holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods, they suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations uh, of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, uh, sorry, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary of boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. So notice he acknowledges some things. The first thing he acknowledges here is, uh, and it says it this way, but if you have a translation where you can see how they capitalize, you'll see the difference. He, it sounds like he's saying, Lord, you're my Lord. That's kind of redundant, isn't it? But if you look at what's there, the first word is Lord with all caps, okay? And what that means is that they have, they have translated the divine name Yahweh as Lord there, okay? The second Lord is not caps, and that means that that's the word Adonai, okay? Which would be probably something like master. And what he's saying here is using the personal name of God, Yahweh, you are my master. You are my master. That tells me that there's something going on here more than what it looks like on the surface. This isn't David 
making a bland statement with little meaning. He's saying something of very uh, important. Um, he's, he's making his position uh, with, in regards to God known. He's acknowledging that God is the Lord of his life. And so this is reinforcing his commitment to Yahweh. And by doing so, he is dethroning every other claim of every other God. You can see it in the next verses when he talks about um, he talks about the other gods and pouring out libations and all of that. He's saying, no, I'm not going after Baal, who claims to send the rain. I'm not going after Ashtoreth, who claims to, to give uh, fertility to people. I'm not going after the other gods that the other nations worship. The things that people put their faith in, I'm not going after that. I'm not going to even put my confidence, he says it in other Psalms, in horses and chariots, or otherwise my army. I'm putting my hope in the Lord. Look, that may not mean much to us because most of us aren't putting our confidence in horses and chariots, but we might be putting our confidence that the United States government is going to take care of us. I want to encourage you, be very careful about that. Thank God for the freedoms we have. Thank God for the protections we have. We have some that serve in the military that are part of this church. We're thankful for you. But we have to acknowledge that we cannot put our faith ultimately in people. We have to put our faith in God. We can't put our faith in governments. We've got to put our faith in God. Are you with me? We can't put our faith ultimately in medicine. We have to put our faith in God. Now, I'm not saying that you can't take medicine, go to the doctor, and get the help that you need. I hope you understand that I believe that that can be a way that God heals. But we can't put our ultimate confidence in those things. We can't put our confidence in psychology. We can't put our confidence in education ultimately. Those things have a place. But ultimately, I'm talking about beyond that, we have to put our confidence in God. Are you with me? There are a lot of people who make gods out of other things that are good things, but they're not gods. And that's the distinction we need to make. So David's making that here. He acknowledges, uh, Yahweh, you are my master. Not those things. You are my master. And so he looks to them. And it's important in uncertainty here to know who it is we're committed to. Everyone has uncertainties in life. Anybody here not have uncertainties in life? You know, it, you know what's coming. You got it all. God's shown you every step along the way. And that's, that's nobody, right? We all know that there's things that are uncertain in life. And because that's the case, um, we could think that everything is uncertain, but it's not. When some things are uncertain, don't make the mistake of thinking everything's uncertain. Do you understand the distinction that we're making there? It might be like uh, in Psalm 46 when it says, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Though the earth be removed and the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, still it goes on to the next verse and says, there's a city, who uh, there's a streams who make glad the city of God and it will not fall. In other words, God's throne will not fall even if everything else is removed. When I read Psalm 46, I think of, and forgive me for this, but I think of the mountains that you got just sliding off into the inlet. And if that happened, how terrible that would be for our city. But God's throne has not fallen. God's throne hasn't fallen. It's important to know who we're committed to. Even if we have uncertainties, not everything's uncertain. The person who has no mooring 
in life, nothing to connect them to something solid. They'll drift. But the person who is tethered to God can be strong in the midst of a storm. Notice also in verse 2 through 6, he acknowledges the call of the holy. This is a little bit obscure in the Hebrew, and so different translations present a little bit differently. Um, But the thing that really is pointed out here is that following other gods is a slippery slope. Okay? It gets worse and worse, that their, their problems will become worse and worse. They're going to have more and more troubles. And here's, here's how I think of that is that sometimes during life, it all looks really good. But then in a moment, that can fall apart. Remember how it talks about in a moment, your riches will be taken from you. And uh, in Psalm, one of, I think it's 73, where David says, maybe 77, where he says, uh, my foot almost slipped. I saw the ungodly and how they have healthy bodies and they have full bank accounts and all of that. And uh, I almost envied, I almost said something which would discourage the faithful. But then he says, I went into the house of God and I saw their end. Okay? Riches are not bad. It's that if we make our lives all about that to the exclusion of God... We've got an idol. So he says, I go into the house of God and I see they're in. It's a slippery slope to slide down. And so he acknowledges here that the holy are called to live a certain way. And so he de- he decides that he will not participate in what they're doing. He's not going to notice in verse uh, 4 here, he will not run after other gods with them. He's not going to do it. He's not going to run after other gods. He's not pursuing other gods. He's going to follow the Lord. He will not worship them. It doesn't say it that way. It says, I will not pour out libations, okay? This is libations of blood. These are, this would be a way of offering a false god a drink, okay? As if they're drinking together and they're having a certain kind of heathenistic communion. He says, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to do that. I will not worship them. And, and then he says, he will not invoke their names, okay? He says uh, specifically, I will not take their names upon my lips. And some people have interpreted this to mean that we're not to speak the names of other gods. And um, I, there's a little bit of trouble with that because all the prophets of the Old Testament called out the name Baal and Ashtoreth and, and Shemosh and all the other gods that were there. And so this can't be what that means. And as you look into it, what it means is to invoke their names in a kind of prayer, an expectation that you're going to call upon those things and they will be the answer, not Yahweh, but those other gods, those other trusts. We often think that we're materialistic and we don't, we don't have idols in America. That's wrong. Do you know that? People put their confidence in all kinds of things other than God. Okay. In fact, I was reading a book, um, I think it was called no, no God But God or something like that, and the, the author said, Baal is alive in America because he's the God of sensuality. And people are putting their whole lives behind that. And they don't know it. They don't know his name. They wouldn't call on his name. But they're worshiping at the altar of Baal. Sensuality. When sex is put up as a, an idol in life, that's what's happening. It's just that we have different names for it. So he says, I'm not going to invoke their names. I'm not going to swear by the names of these other gods. And so David is, really what he's doing here is clarifying his trust. It's not in that, 
It's in this. It's not in them. It's in him. He's clarifying his trust. And then he acknowledges the Lord alone is his portion. Uh, If you look at verse uh, 5 here, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places. So here it's saying something about that that they would relate to and, and maybe we would relate to if we thought about where we live. And if you own your own home, you've got probably a property line and a yard and uh, things like that. And you consider that like, that's your home. That's your place, right? My home is my castle, and that's my place. And we get to be in charge of that particular area. But what he's he's talking about here is something that would be akin to that. Remember, the word portion was significant in the inheritance of Israel because each tribe, when they came into the land, received a portion, and then that was divided up into the families and the clans and down to individuals that they received a portion, and that was their inheritance from God, right? So then the thing that helps us understand this is that to one tribe, God said, you will not receive a portion. Who was it? Levi, right? The tribe of Levi. Each tribe received a portion except Levi. And God said in Numbers 13, uh, 18, 20, uh, he said, I am your portion and your inheritance. So check this out. Long after the throne of David is passed to someone else uh, and the riches of his earthly kingdom are put out of reach, he has an inheritance with God. He has a portion who is the Lord. And if you thought, if that thought troubles you, like, all the stuff that you've accumulated in life doesn't get to be yours in the next life. Uh, I would point out two things. One is that um, God is more of a reward than any of those things. Okay, That would be the first thing. And then the other thing I would like to remind you of is that Jesus inherits all. And he inherits everything. The whole earth is his. And with that, he gives us an inheritance. So what you will have in the next life will be far better than what you have in this life. Okay? I'd like you to think about that as I wrap this message up, all right? Uh, he will protect our lot. He, he goes on to say, he will protect my lot. And so what you've trusted with him is secure. Derek Kidner said in his commentary, this wealth is not insecure because it's unseen, nor again unreal because it's intangible. What God has offered us in terms of inheritance is far better than that. The inheritance from God is good. He says boundary lines have fallen in good places. Okay, Have you ever seen an ugly property before? And you think, man, those boundary lines fell in unfortunate places. My dad, when I was a kid, bought a piece of property in Arkansas. We had relatives down there. And uh, he talked about how we might build a house and move there. And so... uh, that, was, that got me really excited. They have mountains. We, I grew up in Kansas. There's no mountains. It's flat, uh, kind of dull in some ways, but there's some beauty to it. Anyway, I was kind of thinking that would be cool to move to Arkansas and uh, be close to some of my cousins. And w- we went down there one time, and he showed me the property. And I'm telling you, the boundary lines fell in unpleasant places. It did not look good. There was a, there was a barbed wire fence and a bunch of trees and brush and Maybe I just didn't get the vision of what he was looking at, but that was not a beautiful property. Uh, no mountains that you could see from where that was. Anyway, 
uh, it occurs to me that when God offers us inheritance, it's good. First Peter chapter uh, 1 verse 3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish. Listen, it can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So there's something, if you're trusting in Christ, that awaits you that's better than the here and now. We need to hear that because some people are really comfortable with the way things are right now. We're glad for what all we have, and we don't want Jesus to come back because we want to enjoy it. And I challenge you that if Scripture is true, what God is offering us is far better. Amen. Thank you. We need to also acknowledge how good it is to live with an inheritance in God. Okay, I'm going to hurry along. The, 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 second, uh, the fourth, third thing he does here is he resolves, verses 7 and 8. He resolves to praise the Lord, and he says because the Lord counsels him. He uh, receives advice and, and a source of wisdom from God. And so that in verse 7, uh, his heart searches through the night or something like that. The NET translates this, during the night I reflect and learn. So God gives counsel, and through the night I reflect and learn. I learn from God. He resolves to keep his eyes on the Lord. Notice uh, it says that in verse, um, I will praise the Lord. Verse 8, I will keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Um, This is a, a, a poetic phrase. At the right hand means the hand of power. I'm sorry if you're left handed. Uh, the figure of speech follows the majority in this point. They say between 11% and 17% of people are left-handed. So, unfortunate you don't get the metaphor. But the principle is still true that with God at our right hand, at the place of our strength, when God, here's, here's what this poetically means, is when God is our strength, we will not be shaken. With God at our right hand, the phrase means with God as our strength, we will not be shaken. If you do it in your own strength, you're going to be shaken because there are things in life, no matter how tough you are and how gritty you are, it will shake you. But with God at our right hand, we don't have to be shaken because he's our strength. So he says, I'll keep my eyes on the Lord. This means much more than uh, much more than we're just not looking at other gods or quick fixes. You can look to the Lord and you can have practical wisdom, which he gives. You can look to the Lord, uh, but you can't, uh, sorry, you can look to the Lord, but you cannot put your total confidence in other kinds of idols. We can put our eyes on the problem too much that it grows bigger than God. And I don't think it's unbiblical for us to name the problem. When I was growing up, I heard different teachers say, you shouldn't, you shouldn't talk about the problem. You shouldn't speak, speak about it. And, and I don't find that to be biblical because I find several places in Scripture, uh, Hezekiah, for one, when the Assyrians are attacking, he names the problem. Okay? Uh, another one is Jehoshaphat. You see all of this, Lord, and here's the problem, and we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Okay? Uh, I think the early church named the problem in Acts chapter 4 when it said, see how the nations raged and the people plot a vain thing. You see the problem, Lord. 
uh, and then they pray, and God gives them boldness and strength. So I don't think it's wrong to name the problem. I think it's wrong to focus so much on the problem that you focus on it more than God. Are you with me? We need to put our confidence in him. And so he says, I, with my eyes uh, on the Lord, then he will give me strength at my right hand. I have my eyes fixed on the Lord. He resolves to look to the Lord. Okay, so he says, I will not be shaken. This is his resolve. These are the things that I will do. I will praise. I will keep my eyes on the Lord. Uh, and I, I will not be shaken as a result. And then the final thing here in verses 9 through 11, he exalts. He exalts. What's that mean? That's not the same as exalt, by the way. I think that uh, what David did needs a special word, okay? Because uh, we have heard of rejoicing so much that it might be thinned out for us. We don't really think of rejoicing. Or it becomes kind of bland. The word, you, you know, we know we ought to rejoice, right? But in time because we've heard that so much, that can become a little bit bland to us. The, the call still remains to rejoice. But I think another word here would bring some fresh life to this. Um, this is an older word, and we don't use it much to describe uh, an action, but let's use it here. He exults, E-X-U-L-T-S. And this word means to show or feel triumphant elation. To show or feel triumphant elation. And literally, it means this. It means to leap for joy. So you might not do it with your legs, but you might do it in your heart. To leap for joy. He's prayed the prayer. He's made the resolution. He's put his confidence in God. And now his response is that he is going to exult in the Lord. He's going to feel this triumphant elation. And you can do that if you want. If you want to leap for joy right now, go ahead. You can do that. Uh, he exults, and it has this physical effect. I'd like you to follow me through these last uh, few verses here. It says, uh, therefore, my heart is glad. Physical effects, right? My heart is glad. My tongue rejoices. Hey, he's causing him to say something. My body rests. Anybody been through something where you were just worried and worried and worried, and then the answer, the solution came, and you felt relieved, relieved enough that you could finally go take that nap that you'd been wanting to have, but because of the stress of the circumstance, you couldn't get to a restful place? Anybody walk the floor at night? You pace the floor at night out of concern or out of prayer? He's saying now at the end of this, my body rests. There's a rest that can come upon us when we know in whom we're trusting. He exults because his hope is in the Lord. He says these things. These are his firm, cemented confidences. They're, they're now formed in granite in him. You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. David, who doesn't have a, a rich theology of the afterlife life like what we have, he just knows God is both the God of the dead and of the living. He knows that. He knows he can trust him. He knows there's a promise of life after, but he doesn't know what it looks like. And that might be where we are right now. We might not know much, but we know that Jesus has promised he's going to prepare a place for us and that it's going to be good. And we might just have to trust him with the details. It's going to be better. The Bible says, no, I have seen 
no ear has heard, neither has it entered the mind of man what God has prepared for those who love him. It's better. It's better than what we could expect. We're looking forward to it. And, and so he is recognizing that God will not abandon me to the realm. He's not going to leave me in hell. He's not going to leave me in Sheol. He's not going to leave me in the grave. Okay, he's recognizing that. When you die, you don't just turn to dust and there is no more. If, if Christ is right, if the scripture is true, there's something that awaits us beyond this life. There's life after life. Okay? There's life after death. And there's life after life after death. There's a period of time we go and spend time in heaven, but then there's a new heavens and a new earth in which we will have bodies that you can feel like this. Do you believe that? We're not just going to be spirits and we're not going to be angels. We're going to be some kind of transformed being like Christ's resurrection body. And it will be tangible. And what I'm saying that for is so that you understand it's as real as what we're experiencing right now. It's not some ether thing that's out there that's nebulous. It's going to be as real, more real to us than what we're experiencing right now. That's in the goodness of God. And we we need to be confident. He will not abandon us. Death is not the last word for those trusting in the Lord. You will not let your faithful one see decay. There's a double meaning here because as David speaks this, his body is going to go into the ground and experience decay. But there's prophecy here also of Christ whose body did not spend long enough in the grave to start decaying. You understand that before he was decayed, he rose again, triumphant in a resurrection body. You will make known to me the path of life. He's going to see us through to life. And you will fill me with joy in your presence and eternal pleasures in your right hand. Notice that God's power, his right hand, will accomplish this. Exulting like this is faith triumphant. We've worked through in prayer. We've acknowledged God's faithfulness. It comes at the end of a resolve to have God be our Lord. I think many of us have faced the dark night of the soul. It comes from trouble. Some hear more deeply than others. Sometimes we go through things that they're barely worth mentioning, uh, and we pray about them. We should. But there are others that your soul has been torn apart by the anguish of life. And either it's something you've gone through or something's been done to you that is heart-wrenching. There's coming before us, too, the specter of death. And... uh, I don't mean to be negative in that. I don't think, I think the reason we think of that as so negative is we live in a materialistic culture in which the death is seen as the end of all things. For the Christian, it's not. It's the passageway to the next life. And um, I was listening to a podcast this last week of a, a guy who mentioned how churches used to have graveyards in, just outside the door. And in, in some place, I think in Britain, there's a lot of uh, churches that still have that, that just outside the door of the church there's a graveyard. And you can see all the people who used to go to this church who now, have now passed, and their graves are there with markers of the times that they lived. And the person who was sharing this made the comment, and, and by the way, I'm not asking for us to put a cemetery in our yard here. But the relevant point to all of this was that people both lived and died before God, and there was a recognition that God was both the God of the the dead and the living. 
And as you went to church, you passed by that graveyard, and you thought about how God was their God too. And he'll be our God after we're gone. Thought about that? And here's the other thing it does. When you pass by the graveyard on your way to church, you think about how life is not permanent, and we have to live it before God now. Remember the psalm, I think Psalm 90, 91, somewhere in there. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. There's something that gives wisdom about realizing this will not go on forever. The sermon will not go on forever. There's wisdom in that. I'm done, actually. He's faithful. Life has to be lived in the reality that he is our portion and not this life. God is our portion and not this. And David, back in the Old Testament, before Christ ever came, he had this understanding. Surely, surely we who know of Jesus can have this understanding too. This is not our portion. God is our portion. If all this is taken away, we still have our portion. Somebody said, I think it was Augustine, he who has everything and has God, has no more than he who has God only. He who has everything, all the riches of the earth, and has God, has no more than he who has God only. See, we're rich in him. If you have God, you have it all. If you're in Christ, you have it all. He is the possessor and inheritor of all things. And he will be, he'll be shown to us in the final days. Teach us, Lord, to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Amen. Stand with me if you would. Let's take a few moments. Spend some time at the altars if you'd like to. We're going to play some uh, worship music. And Today, maybe you don't have the eternal hope that would come from trusting in Christ. Maybe you don't have the conviction that David had. You and I can have this deep conviction because of Jesus. Okay. I want to challenge you today, if uh, you've not made a commitment to Christ, to pray this prayer prayer like this. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I, I'm in need of you. I can't face everything alone, but with you, if what this guy says is true, I can face all things through you. Pray a prayer like that today. It could be a day when Christ comes into your life and your hope is redirected. Your perspective is broader and deeper than what this life offers you could be transformed. And that kind of confidence will get you through hard days. Okay. There's a, another category of people that you might be going through experiencing something that's heart-wrenching right now. God is God in the midst of that. And if we know where our refuge is, we can run to him. And I want to encourage you today to come to the altar or make an altar at your seat. And let's find God as our refuge in your trial anchor to him or moor yourself to him so that you don't you don't drift about in the midst of a storm get tossed to and fro we can be strong in the lord today this is a great psalm i hope it will uh, change our spiritual dna change how we think about things we want god to be all in all lord be our god we pray in jesus name Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.